welcome to Patsy's Sports Law History. I am your host, Jamie Mitchinen, a.k.a. Sports Law Blonde, here today flying solo. I encourage y'all to subscribe and review us via iTunes or Stitcher. Follow me on Twitter at Sports Law Blonde and check out the blog, sportslawblondes.com. This is Episode 5, Sports Brain Injuries circa 1905, plus all the rosé. I'll be talking about some of the earliest documented incidences of cerebral trauma and the tone around it. 1905 in particular sparked rules and regulation changes and even saw a little Fed intervention. So why is this topic kind of taboo a century later? Here's why I'd stay on the topic after a couple of bottles of rosé on my parents' porch. For the first time in classy sports law history's history, you and I are going to have some alone time. Things are going to get a little intimate because this truly is a topic that deserves that as... Oh, what did I do? Oh, well, anyway, it's a topic that the infamous Michael Bolton would say needs some time, love, and tenderness. So that's what we're going to give it. Concussions, brain injury, everything, all of those cerebral effects of contact sports sometimes does not get the attention that it deserves. Or if it does get the attention it deserves, it's because of the media and not from the actual entity itself. So I want to focus primarily on what and how brain injuries and how sports were viewed, how these contact sports, specifically football, because that was the sport that I could find the most information on, how it was viewed through the media, through, well, I guess in the media, people have agendas sometimes, whatever. Some things don't change. But people were getting hurt. People were getting injured. People were dying back 100 years ago or more. So I want to just backtrack to some true history between just you and I of what football was like in 1905. The game back then, for those of you who don't know, it was very different from how football kind of is today. Um, Today, we know football to be this four-quarter, 15-minute-long thing to where the game is 60 minutes long. Back then, it was 70 minutes long. Back then, teams were much, much smaller compared to what they are today. So that these players who were on the field for offense or defense, whatever they were designated as, they were on the field for almost every minute, for almost every play. Also, coaches, because there wasn't really, well, there wasn't any sort of big spectacular high school or collegiate sort of entity that oversaw sports in 1905 either during this time frame. So coaches, they were encouraged, I guess is the best way to put it, to put whatever today's equivalent of athletic trainers were on the sidelines. The game was also different in the fact that there was no forward pass at this point. There was no neutral zone between what was the offensive line and what was the defensive line. There was only five yards for a first down as opposed to ten yards to what we see today. So when you kind of think about it, if you're 
you know, football-minded, your incentive to run kind of on the outside of those tackles, um, there wasn't a whole lot of that incentive because it was like, hell, I have four tries total to get five yards. I'm just going to run it up. I'm going to get in the nitty-gritty. So by the rules that were enacted in football circa 1905, it was a truly ugly, yard-by-yard, brutal game. Regardless of kind of whatever journalistic feature you see, you'll learn that. Because a lot of different articles, I was, this was a very difficult sort of thing to research. It was frustrating for me. It was very, 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 very frustrating. Because every article I would look up had different stats. Every article I looked up had different quotes, had a different perspective. When you're trying to research something that happened in history, you want as accurate of an account as you can get. And I don't know if I could find it, quite frankly. Like, that's frustrating to me. There are people who write about concussions in sports and the history of concussions in sport. And one of them was this guy, Menke. Um, he wrote this big encyclopedia on sport. His second edition, actually, in the 1940s is what is infamously um, quoted. Especially with particular, like, especially with regards to the history of concussions because we don't have a whole lot of things on this concussions, brain trauma, how people viewed this and what kind of what people may have known back then. With sports at that time, there wound up being this government intervention that produced kind of a big thing of what we know today, which I'll get into a little bit later. So I'm gonna do my best with information I have found from various sources to do this Topic justice, because it deserves it. 1905. It was a big year. Kind of a scene review. A number cited changes depending on whatever your source is, but there were multiple young men who died from football-related injuries in this year and in all the years surrounding it, actually, too. And from what I could find, there were more than 100 people who were seriously injured. From football. From the few people who played. Among various levels. Depending on what you find. You may find anywhere between. What was cited? Maybe 18 to nearly 30 people died. From football related injuries. What's kind of common ground. Is that in college football. Three deaths happened that year. So when you think about it. There was no real professional football event. So that means. There were a lot of young kids dying from football. And when it comes to news sources, you're either going to get serious stories or you're going to get satirical stories. Satirical magazines were warning about like what future football players could be like. They were joking about them possibly being pansies, being emasculated. Like That was their worry back then. One comic actually depicted the Grim Reaper sitting on the goalposts, smiling down at all the injured and deceased football players that were piled below to enunciate these injuries. Now, 
we have to take this with a grain of salt. I know. Because all journalists, like I said, have their own agendas. And given it was over 100 years ago, I mean, you can only cross-check so much. Even if there were agendas, though. Like, how do we treat this? They were aware of this situation over 100 years ago. The Chicago Tribune, a very reputable source, um, they called that year, 1905, NCAA football's death harvest. People were dying. They were paralyzed. They died of different symptoms. There were men who were pulled off of these piles. So where you see a dead guy at the bottom of a pile. There were internal injuries, which given medical advances weren't how they were back then, like how they are now. There were all these internal injuries that they could even still identify back then, like fractured skulls, ruptured intestines, and what happens when you're struck on the head? It turned into this big debate. Could football be revised? Could the rules be revised? And could and should they be revised? To where you can keep the substance and the quality of the game that people love. Or was football, as some people saw it, beyond repair? To where it should be suspended. They were very adamant people on both sides of the argument. Back in 1905, then Harvard president um, Charles Elliott. He was one of the most prominent anti-football voices, I guess you could say. He was adamant that the game itself was the problem. And he wasn't alone. On the other side, it was Yale's football coach um, who, you know, if you haven't heard of him for football, you should know his name. His name is Walter Camp. He is kind of known as the father of American football. He really didn't want to change the game. He believed in football as it was even at that time. The brutality, the masculinity, all these intangible adjectives that we attach to this product that very few people participate in at a high level, that many people only participate in at a recreational level, but that millions upon millions view on a level. People on each side had their own idea of what reforms could be possible, if anything at all. It got so bad at this time. It was so bad that the federal government actually had to intervene. And it's a little bit exaggerated, the amount that the then president, Teddy Roosevelt, who people loved and adored, who was known for his grit, who was known for that. He had, like, his son was playing at Harvard. His son played Harvard football. And he was a freshman at the time. So he kind of also had a personal stake in it. Regardless of his actual input as president, he got the spotlight on football injuries. Specifically, these head injuries, these brain injuries. If you look up the history of college football, and and I'm talking, I guess, a lot about college football because there was no real, like, there, there wasn't an NFL at this point. There was no real organization other than, like, college football and then, like, the various, like, amateur high school things that were across the nation. So collegiate football is the easiest comparison for me to use right now. And it's the easiest to find information on. And even then, it's really hard to find information on this stuff. It's really disheartening when you think about it. One of the big cases 
everyone was kind of shook up about and what's been kind of cited as the case that sparked the then POTUS interest in in football and concussions and brain injury. It was the 1905 death of a Union College halfback, Harold Moore. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Union College and NYU. This kid, Harold Moore, died of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was kicked in the head during a game. He was trying to tackle an NYU player. And they didn't have the medical advances that we have today. So, I mean, it was a hemorrhage. The game at this time, we talked about the debate a little bit about whether there should be something that was done about this. Was it exaggerated? Could football be reconciled or should it be suspended? The phrase CTE, I'm not even going to try to enunciate the real thing because I'm like a bottle and a half deep in rosé. Because back then, they didn't know what CTE was. They did have a phrase though. They had a phrase, traumatic brain injury, TBI. It was routinely referred to in many news articles. And according to those news articles, that was, at that time, kind of one of the biggest challenges for football. Like, could it overcome this for both the game organizers, the medical professionals? I mean, the symptoms were pretty similar. I mean, they they had very clear-cut examples of what symptoms were. And they ranged from a simple headache to hemorrhages. And they had no way to clearly diagnose any of it. They knew this existed back in 1905. So why the fuck didn't the NFL... Well, maybe they kind of did. Circa 1905. Football was... Yes, it was a different game. But because of everything that happened then, things evolved to where it became the game that it is what we know it as today. The quality, the principle of what it was didn't change. When you look at NCAA football, I mean, a player wore a leather helmet for the first time in 1893. It was the Army-Navy game. Because, I mean, still, in 1905, hell, like, not everyone wore a helmet. It wasn't even the norm. But for reals, it seemed kind of like a radical thing. Journalists may have exaggerated the drama, but regardless, I mean, they, they were doing so to call upon these people, these college administrators, these presidents, these coaches, to act. These kids didn't have any say. They were calling on these people to try and change these kids' lives so they could actually be healthy. And it wasn't just journalists nitpicking their own arguments. There were fans. There were fans trying to be vocal, writing into newspapers, saying what they felt, what they saw, because they loved the game. They voiced their opinions because they loved the game and they didn't want to see it extinguished. They wanted to see it preserved. For example, there was one quote um, from a fan in the New York Times in 1905. He wrote, I have followed the ball and howled along the sidelines with the noisiest enthusiast and waxed wrathful of the enemies of the game, but now with a clearer and fairer view, although with no cooling whatsoever of my sporting blood i want to go on record as saying that football is the biggest fools of an institution in america as a sport 
this guy wanted to see rule changes that could fix the game. And after 1905, lo and behold, he, he saw those changes. I mean, concussions, they were in the news. Inside of sports and outside of sports. People didn't know how to write about them because they didn't know exactly what they were or what to call them. But nonetheless, with the symptoms, they were listed. They were followed. And like I said, TBI was the phrase that they used. And although reporting on them from like 1900 onward, they, they did so in like boxing, baseball, football, horse racing. The deaths were the big headlines. But I mean, people saw the dangers and viewed concussions as noteworthy. People wanted to hear about them. So that's why papers wrote about it. They didn't always use the word concussion, but they would use phrases like knock senseless or knocked out to describe what happened at these various cerebral injuries. That's like my new favorite phrase right now. It makes me sound fancy as I'm drinking rosé. A couple years before 1905, there was this publication, the Journal of American Medical Association. It was a review that quote-unquote said, Clinical reports, coupled with everyday experiences, have clearly demonstrated that blow or falls on the head may cause serious trouble, both present and prospective, without producing fracture to the skull wall. Every case of recent head injury, however trivial may appear, should, we believe, be treated with the great consideration Less damage to hidden and important structures escape our attention, thus leaving a foundation for future trouble, which too often is irreparable. What the fuck does that sound like? Yeah. Doctors were seeing these symptoms. Doctors were seeing people act out symptoms that are reported today in people who are later found out to have CTE after death because currently even we can't we can't diagnose it before death. So even back in 1905, doctors were seeing these symptoms of violence. There was one case, a dude in Wisconsin. Apparently he was one of the bright kids. He was one of the brightest and most popular kids. But Quote unquote, people were saying he they thought he was mentally unbalanced. He was one of the brightest. He was one of the most popular. He played football and he committed suicide in his room at the YMCA building with chloroform. He had a fall from when he was working on a scaffold the summer before, but in the report there were subsequent injuries from football that came directly before, um, a week before, according to the reports. So this was in 1901, and it was included in the statistics for the 1901 deaths in football that journalists were reporting, or that they were using to report from late from a later date. People knew this was happening back over 100 years ago. It's a letter that describes a problem to the White House in 1903. Dear Ted, in spite of hurry, hurry. On the outside of your envelope, I did not like to act until I consulted my mother and thought the matter over. And to be frank with you, old fellow, I'm by no means sure that I am the right thing, that I'm doing the right thing now. If it were not that I feel you'd be so bitterly disappointed, I would strongly advocate you acquiescing the decision to leave you off the varsity second squad this year. 
So, this is a quote from a letter written to the White House, written to Teddy President, then President Teddy Roosevelt. Because, I mean, it's kind of how it is today. You don't want to say people are afraid of emasculating a sport because there is a toughness, especially with football. I mean, and with hockey, even the grittiness of hockey. When I was a real fan of hockey before the lockout, it was a different sport then. But these games, even over 100 years later, are still having this discussion over whether these changes to make the game safer to where people aren't dying of brain injuries caused by the sport, whether it emasculates the game. That just seems wrong. This letter toward the last paragraph says, I believe in rough manly sports, but I do not believe in them if they degenerate into the sole end of anyone's existence. I, do, I don't want you to sacrifice staying well in your studies to any over-athleticism, athletic proficiency. Proficiency is a mighty good servant, and like so many other good servants, a mighty bad master. I'm glad you should play football. I'm glad you should box. I'm glad that you should ride and shoot and walk and row as well as you do. I should be very sorry if you did not do these things, but don't even get into the frame of mind which regards these things as constituting the end to which all your energies must be devoted or even the major portion of your energies. Shit. After, he, after President got that letter, he wrote his son, who was playing football at Harvard at the time. I've received the letters from Dr. Peabody, from Mr. Woods and Mr. Billings. They all say you should play on the third squad. This is my first, and as I'm convinced, my real judgment. In the case, if you get smashed up now in a serious way, it may prevent you from playing later. I think it a little silly to run any imminent risk of a serious smash simply to play on the second squad instead of the third. And that's a parent's concern right there. That's not a president's concern. That is a parent's concern. And yes, the president did get involved. And he called these parties. He called the Harvard person. He called the Yale person. He called... I don't... I don't even remember right now who else he called. But he called this conference to try and... To kind of try and save football. To make it safer for the players. He liked the sport. And, I mean, journalists and stuff. I think they may have ex- the journalists back then exaggerated Teddy Roosevelt's involvement in it. I mean, either way, that Harvard president, Charles Light, was really anti-football. He thought that the game itself was a problem. And then there was Yale's football coach, Walter Camp, who was their arch-rival. He thought that football didn't need reforming. He called his people together and... There were a lot of other issues going on um, with the federal government at the time. But, I mean, he still had this football issue was lingering over the course of his inauguration through March. People were, were talking about what to do. College football was, like, the thing on the time. So it's the easiest to, like, kind of measure. At this early stage, people were wondering, should we replace some of these presidents who don't agree with what we think football should be, who we think want to get rid of football. Other colleges were getting rid of football altogether and replacing it or incorporating rugby because of the style of hits and everything. It was different rules. And actually, a lot of my friends play rugby, and I was watching a game earlier. 
this year, my friend Brian plays on a local men's adults team. I don't quite understand him fully, but it's pretty baller. I remember I was trying to, like, learn about it in undergrad back at Michigan because I was, like, hooking up with a kid who used to play at Georgia. And I was like, I don't understand this. I don't understand why people hoist each other in the air, do these things. But I was like, the one thing I do understand is the style of hit. And personally, for me, I think that's going to... I think the NFL is going to have to change its style of hit. But either way, that's neither here or there, for now at least. So after this kid, um, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage. That is kind of what sparked Teddy, pre- then-President Teddy Roosevelt's interest in this case. There were headlines that were addressing swear to improve game and quote representative of big universities to follow Roosevelt's advice to where at this meeting where Walter Camp and all these other people were actually who cared about football they were all there they said that it was quote agreed that they consider an honorable obligation which exists to carry out in the letter and in spirit of the rules of the game of football relating to roughness holding and foul play and the active coaches of our universities being present with us pledge themselves so as to regard it and to their utmost to carry out that obligation. That conference was huge. Sure enough, there were revisions that were made rule-wise, kind of like what we were seeing earlier with the yards, with all that stuff, to where an actual commission was formed. It was called the Intercollegiate Intercollegiate. Athletic Association of the United States. A few years later, that allegiance, that association, was renamed the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA. So through all this turmoil, through all of this harshness, regardless of how much it was exaggerated in the press, these injuries, these deaths, these cerebral injuries specifically, led to the creation of the NCAA. The brutality of what was then football led to the NCAA. Whether you love it or hate it now, it led to the creation of it, led to the creation of college sports today as we know it. People were afraid back then of the smallest changes affecting the quality and the substance of what sports were, what football was. And today... You think about 90 years later, 100 100 and plus years later, people still don't like to touch on sports cases. That's why sports law is special. Sports is treated differently in law. Nobody wants to be that person who fucks up a sport, who screws up the history, the game, that we know it as it is. I mean, the most perfect parallel right now that everyone can kind of associate with is the NCAA and amateurism, no one wants to fuck it up. The NCAA, they know that they should do something about it. They should give some players at least a little bit. There is some value that these players should be seeing, but they don't know how to do it, and they don't want to create a rule that could alter the game as it's preserved as we know it. Back in 1905, people took the initiative to say, we need to do something. Yeah, it's going to make football a little different, but in the long run, it's going to preserve the game. 
It's going to keep our players safe. Flash forward 90 years. In the early 1990s, then NFL Commissioner Tagliabu, I'm totally butchering his name right now, whatever, he created this committee. It was the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee. And he proceeded to say, quote, we discuss concussions, in other words, on the list of things every time we have a league meeting. We think the issue of knees, of drugs, and steroids, and drinking is a far greater problem according to the number of incidents. At that same time, one of the guys who was um, brought into that committee, he was the New York Jets team doctor at the time, Dr. Elliot Pellman, and he was actually the chair of the MTBI committee. He flat out said concussions are part of the profession. It's an occupational risk. You gotta be shitting me. Like, really? Yeah, concussions are going to happen. When you have a contact sport, concussions will happen, but that does not give you the green light to be an ostrich, to put your head in the sand. In 1905, they weren't trying to put their head in the sand. They were learning about what was happening, and as they saw, they, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't have the medical advances that we have today. But even then, there is a speech that is always said. So after 90 years... The NFL commissioner then says those things. Um, and I'm not even going to get into the current NFL and NCAA football concussion litigation. I'm not even going to get into the NHL concussion litigation. I'm not even going to get into the MMA concussion litigation. There are so many multi-district litigation cases because of what we know now. Arguing over when people knew things and whether they failed to tell the participants when they feel to tell the participants and why. But if you think about it, there's a speech that happened in 1905. What do you know? Harvard's head football coach, Bill Reed, he wrote this diary. In this diary, he wrote excerpts that were based on what their team doctor would say. He actually gave this speech annually that went quote-unquote, in case any man in a game gets hurt by a hit on the head so that he does not realize what he is doing, his teammate should at once insist that time be called and that a doctor come onto the field to see what is the trouble. That speech from someone of respect and authority being given to a team, specifically addressing what we now know as concussion symptoms, what's happened to that? For real, what's happened to that? In 1905, they knew that concussions existed. They knew that this brain injury, this brain trauma, was a huge part of these injuries, of these deaths that were happening, whether it be on the field or shortly thereafter. And one of the top programs at the time was trying to talk to his players. One of the coaches of the top programs at the time was trying to talk to his players about the seriousness of concussions without saying the word concussion because they didn't know that was diagnosis back then. Like today, there are players because there's so much money on the line, careers on the line, that they hide concussions. They don't show people, they don't tell people of symptoms despite what you can see because of the money, because of the careers, because of what could happen. But what if coaches said something like this to everybody to be like yo 
what's more important? Continue to play out this game or continue to play out your career? You look at the NHL. Sid Crosby, the NHL's golden boy, who's had more concussions. Publicly known, unlike anybody on the ice right now. He's a great player. He's a great captain. He's been a captain for a long time. I hate him because he is the closest thing to Steve Eiserman. And how are they still letting him play? I shouldn't say how are they still letting him play. I should say how are they not? How can they still deny? The, not even a connection, but a correlation between the contact sport of hockey and brain injury, concussions, trauma, CTE. Gary Bettman's an ass. I need a drink. I was talking of Gary Bettman. Wants me to drink. My God. Concussions. I mean, they're not new. They're definitely not new. So why are some of those people in the medical community, well, I mean, they're probably just getting money, but why are they agreeing to deny the connection, the correlation, the causation, whatever the fuck there is for evidence? Because I'm pretty sure causation is kind of there for sports like football, MMA, boxing, hockey, soccer, and realistically, any sort of contact sport in general like that. There was a publication in 2014 titled The First Concussion Crisis, Head Injury and Evidence in Early American Football. It states that as early as the mid-16th century, it had been defined as a blow resulting in escape of blood from ruptured tissue. And then by the early 19th century, it was described as an external violence that caused derangement of the brain. And after the Civil War, so it was after, after the Civil War, the knowledge about TBI, as it was called, and brain injury became a bit more open only because football's popularity was increasing. And a few revisions changed. I mean, went over some of them, like the 5 to 10 yards, the forward pass, to try and open up the space. And those have still stuck. So today, why can't people just first acknowledge that this is a thing? Step one, acknowledge whether you want to call it a correlation or flat out a causation, which I think there's enough evidence to prove it in many contact sports. Step one, admit it. Step two, how can we protect the players? If these contact sports, if if we want like football and hockey to have a future, we have to protect the players because they're starting out at young ages. The more aware we become of how early all this injury settles in. How can we not monitor it or change the rules slightly to make the sport have longevity? To make people who love the game have a career, have a long, have a long career? Just bothers me. Does it bother you? How ignorant can these people be? I mean, I, I shit all over Roger Goodell all the time. But I know he knows the seriousness of it. And he can't say how bad it is. It is. I know he's not ignorant. He's smarter than that. But he's an asshole. And he's more or less concerned about the longevity of football. Gary Bettman, I think, is even more of an asshole. How he can flat out deny something. Given hundreds of years of history. And if anybody has more information on early hockey brain trauma stuff please let me know please forward it to me i'd love to read it 
just blows my mind how anyone can be so ignorant. Well, I guess it doesn't blow my mind how somebody can be so ignorant. It blows my mind how the commissioner of the National Hockey League can be so ignorant. I hate ending on a damper note. (laughs) But this is a serious issue. There are a lot of other sources you can look to for current um, concussion litigation amongst various sports, especially because there are so many individual cases and multi-litigation cases and class actions. I encourage all y'all to look up something new today about it. Find out the latest thing you can. What's one party's argument? What's the reason for turning something down? The only way we'll be able to move forward is to learn from these cases, like why people still choose to do what they do, whether it be to play sports, whether it be to defend against rule changes from either side of the party, why people continue to do what they do. The only way we'll learn, unfortunately, is through these law cases. And they didn't have them back in 1905. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the terminology. They saw something. And they weren't afraid. Well, actually, they were afraid at first. Many people were afraid to make changes. But when all was said and done, they made some quick changes to make the game safer. Why is it taking so long for it nowadays? Why can't we come to an agreement to make a quick couple of amends and then set a long-term plan to make these games safer while maintaining their longevity and maintaining the quality and preserving the sports that we have come to know and love. Cheers to that. Well, that's a wrap. So we're coming right in.